All right. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, if uh, we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Paul Pretty. I serve as the teaching pastor here. Uh, Very thankful for that. Very thankful to see you uh, this morning to be able to worship uh, together. If you are a guest this morning, I just want to say a very special welcome to you. So thankful that you've chosen uh, to join us in worship this morning. One thing that we would ask of you this morning, guests, uh, if you would, uh, there's a QR code in front of you. Um, Scan that QR code with your phone. It will direct you to lpguest.com. There's a digital guest information card. Uh, Fill that out if you would. That's not you saying, I'm here forever. It's just you saying, I was here once. And so we would would love to be able to connect with you. Uh, We have several different ministries that we partner with. Select one of those, and we'd love to donate uh, five bucks to that ministry in your honor. Well, today, uh, we are continuing on. We're in week seven of an eight-week series walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the Old Testament, Testament uh, wisdom books. And um, in, in inspiration from the book of Ecclesiastes, we've titled this series, uh, Under the Sun. Okay, And what we've seen, and I won't go into too much of a, of a review, because I know some of you have heard this review seven times, and so I won't, don't want to be that redundant, but maybe a little bit redundant. The big idea uh, that we've said each and every week is that God offers us a full life in an empty world. And the reason we have that big idea is because time and time again, um, Solomon, we've we've gone back to this in chapter one, Solomon, who is the voice of the preacher, uh, asked this question, what does man gain by all of the toil with which he gains under the sun? And his answer he gave to us in verse two, what was his answer? Nothing new. You guys crushed it. We are doing so good. Vanity of vanities. Um, Yes, I, I heard that echo loud and clear from everyone. Uh, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, um, all of these things, he says, over and over again. And so that's really what we've been looking at. And the point has been, if you try and find meaning, if you try and find significance, if you try and find your purpose in this world, you will come up empty. Okay? That's really been the point. And now, then, uh, that was really the first layer of this onion, I've I've called it. In in chapter 6, we got to the second layer of this onion. After he has proved to us, without a doubt, that if you live life for what you can gain in this earth, you you won't really gain anything, he then asks in in verse 12 of chapter 6, well, what is good for us to do in this vain life that we have been given? And so chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, Those are really seeking to answer that question. Well, what is good with the life that we've been given? What should we pursue? And chapter 12, which we'll get to next week, is really a summary of all of it. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to be primarily in chapter 8, though I will reference a verse in chapter 10. One of the things that the preacher, Solomon, is going to say is good for us is how it is we respond to the king. Or in our instance to the authorities that are over, of, over us, um, politically speaking. And so if we exist as a church next week after we talk through politics today, I think that's a praise, right? And so that's really what we're going to get into today. What is, what is the preacher's counsel? How does that then apply to us in our current day context? How do we respond to that? What's a biblical view of this entire topic? And so that's really where we're going. I will say we're going to be in a lot of different verses because I, I, it's always, of course, Scripture is always how to, to process through things. But I think in this one in particular, I want to make sure we have a, a biblical foundation for what is said here. And so all of that being said, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. And then we're, we're going to pray. 
I'm going to reference again chapter 10, verse 20, and we'll go from there. So the text says this, Ecclesiastes 2, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 5. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. That's the text. Now that we all have it, we have a little bit of a context, a little bit of a foundation. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, uh, we do pray and ask that you would help us this morning. Uh, I love that your word... I love that your word, God, is written to common folk like us, like me, and that it is understandable um, by the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would guide us in only the ways that you can. Would you help us to understand, Jesus, would you be magnified and glorified above and beyond all this morning? Again, it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So again, that was the text, obey the command of the king because of God's oath to him. And I said uh, as well in um, chapter 10, verse 20, uh, 20a, it says, um, it says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. All right, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. So obey the king, don't even curse the king, don't even think about, right? Respect the king. And so initially we might think, oh, that's very convenient. Remember, the voice of the preacher is really Solomon. And so what we could say is like, oh, of course, Solomon, you, the king, are saying to your subjects, obey me. Why? Well, because of God's oath to me. Don't even speak against me. Don't curse me. Don't slander me. Don't even do that. And that could be an initial thought because what is essentially being said here is God has established the king. Therefore, because God established the king, obey the king. Don't speak against the king. And so is that all that's being said? I think if we go through the biblical text and the biblical narrative, I don't think we see that quite. And so the questions I think that really are going to drive us this morning are this. Does God choose kings, and in our case, the leaders of our government? And if we disobey the leader or the king in this instance in the text, are we disobeying God? That's really the driving question of this morning. Does God establish this? If we disobey, are we disobeying God? Again, it's going to get a little sensitive in here. So I think the, the first place uh, we need to go is back into the original history of kings and how kings came about in the nation of Israel. And so after the Exodus, we had Moses, and Moses was really the, the leader of Israel, right? God's chosen people. What we see God do is establish these different roles and offices. We have the role of the prophet. The role of the prophet was really to hear the words of God and to deliver those words to the people. We have the office or the role of the priest, and the priest really, is, in a sense, represented the people to God through offerings so that, that we could, in our sinful nature, still have relationship with God through the sacrificial system. And then what we see eventually is that these people called judges are put in place. And these judges are, are almost sort of like kings, but not really. They have a higher authority. And we see different judges. Uh, for example, uh, we see Samson. We see Deborah. Uh, we just read about that several weeks ago. And lastly, we see this guy named Samuel. And Samuel is both a prophet and a judge. Okay, now, eventually, what we see happen in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, is all of the leaders of Israel, which represent 12 tribes of people, they go to Samuel and they say this, beginning in verse 4. It says, Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together 
and came out to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, brutal. You're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations. Again, there seems to be this distinction. They already had a judge, but a king seems to be a higher level of authority. Appoint us a king. Now, what happens is Samuel, he's sort of offended by this because he's the judge, and they're saying, you're old, dude, you're going to die, and your sons are terrible people, and so we want a king over us instead. And so what Samuel does is he takes this to God. He takes this to God, and eventually what God says in verse 7, he says, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so this request from the people of Israel for an earthly king is really a rejection of their divine king. It's how this started in, in Israel's sense. But notice, there were other kings at this time. Of course, there was Pharaoh. We don't call him king. We call him Pharaoh, but that's essentially what he was. So there were kings before this, but in Israel's instance, they're saying, God, we reject you as our divine king. And instead, we're asking for an earthly king. Now, Again, back to our question, Does, is God really the one establishing these authorities? Because that has some really significant implications. Well, to, to look at that, if we go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, what we see is God, after agreeing to this establishing of an earthly king, says, Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. I know it says prince, but prince is just a king in waiting. Okay, so we see God identifying this person, saying, yep, I'm going to make them king. Later, after Saul, that, that's the first king of Israel, we see this in chapter 21, excuse me, um, verse 21 of, of chapter 2 in, in 2 Samuel, he says, he, uh, excuse me, the book of Daniel, I'm, I'm mixed up, i got too many verses today. The book of Daniel, once again, in this sort of idea is God establishing things, Daniel says, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So once again, God's in control. Once again, in Israel's history, we see God identifying David and anointing him to be king. And so then when we sort of step back and we have this biblical foundation, you might say, well, that's just an Old Testament context. What about the New Testament? We're in a different time. We're in a different season. We're under blood of Christ. So let me read to you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. It's the Apostle Paul. And so I think that has some pretty significant implications, again, for us today, right? Notice what uh, Ecclesiastes 8 and Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20a, and what Romans 13 say. What they don't say is, if you like the ruler, and if you like the king, and if you agree with their policies, and if you think they're a decent person, obey the command of the king. There was nothing in there about that, was there? So there seems to be this like difficult task given to us to acknowledge the fact that God is really sovereign over all of this, we have a responsibility to obey these authorities, even if we don't agree with them. And I know for some of us, sort of boiling up inside of us is this, this protest to say, well, what if they're wrong? 
And what if they're asking us to do things that are against our faith? And if that's the question you have, which is fair, move that back down to simmer, because we'll get to that. Right? But, but again, how do we sort of navigate this? I think it's a really opportunity to first talk about our language toward our rulers. Remember, second half of verse 20, chapter 10, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. First Timothy, first Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 say this in a New Testament context. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are on high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Biblical scholars pretty much agree that the Apostle Paul wrote this in either 64 or 65 A.D. Do you know who the emperor in Rome was at six, in 64 A.D.? It's this dude. His name is Nero. He was insane. Nero had his mother stabbed to death. He had one of his wives uh, beheaded um, and executed. Nero, um, it is believed, started a massive fire in Rome in 64 A.D., um, that, that burned down much of the city. And it's believed he started that fire so he could build a new palace. And what Nero did then was he blamed the Christians for it and unleashed widespread persecution against Christians across the Roman Empire. It's also believed that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, both of whom were executed, likely at the command of Nero. And so you're like, wait a minute. That's who's in charge and remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now right now, church, there is a, there's a popular bumper sticker out there, and it says some words, but we all know what the real meaning is. This is where the room starts to heat up a little bit. I understand that. It's not just because of that heat wave over there. But all of a sudden, we start thinking, well, wait a minute. The, the command is not to, to, to curse or slander the king. The command is to obey the king. The command is to, to make prayers and supplications for the king. And so, so, church, what I would say is I don't think we can curse the king out of one side of our mouth and pray for the king out of the other side of our mouth. And I think we have to let that sort of settle in on us as believers in Jesus. To say, I may not agree with this person, I may not agree with the governing authorities that have been placed over me. I may downright think what they're doing is evil, whoever the leader is, in whatever time or season we're in. But I think as Christians, what we have to remember are these biblical commands that the preacher gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, that the Apostle Paul gives us multiple times, both in Romans 13 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and what Peter would also say in his epistle, that we need to pray for those who are in authority so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives. And we need to be led by the Holy Spirit in how it is that we go about praying for those people because I understand that that can be very difficult. Now, the beautiful thing about the time in which we live, which I'm very thankful for, is that we can choose to vote for or against our leaders. It's a blessing. But I think, biblically speaking, we cannot choose whether or not we're going to pray or not pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not. And again, that's a little bit difficult. Now, back to this question. What if our leaders are asking us to do 
things that are against our Christian values or against clear biblical commands, do we still have to submit and obey? And I think that is an absolutely valid question. And so, once again, I want to do a little bit of a, of a survey of what the scriptures say here as we're led toward honoring Jesus in all things in our life. And I think that's just helpful to, to insert into this conversation. Right? I don't want us to be compartmentalized Christians who come on Sunday morning, sing these songs, nod and agree, look through the scriptures. What I want us to be is people who are following Jesus each and every day of our lives, and that oozes out of us in all avenues, politics included. Anyway, what if they're asking us to do something that's against our beliefs? Once again, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 3. Be not hasty. It's a line from Lord of the Rings, I think. Be not hasty to go from his presence. I think Ben got that one. That was it. Uh, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. And so we get some wisdom here. right? I, I love what Pastor Dean at the Lewis Center campus is saying this morning to that verse. He says, keep the king's command, but watch the king's cause. And so we have this sort of indication. Wait a minute. Understand what the king is saying or the ruler is saying, but don't take part in an evil cause. Right? Don't align yourself with, with something evil that's happening. Don't participate in something evil that's happening. And I think what that, what that requires is some real wisdom and discernment, and we see that in the second half of verse 5 of Ecclesiastes 8. And it says, And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So we have this balance. This balance of, okay, I, I, I want to submit, I want to be, be respectful, I want to pray, but if this thing is directly against what I believe or this is an evil cause, I need to have some space and some distance and you need discernment and wisdom on what that space and distance is. And I think, once again, we have some really great biblical examples. If you go to 1 Samuel, once again, in chapter 19, what we see at this point is that Saul, the first king of Israel, he's trying to kill David, who will be the second king of Israel, which is crazy. The Bible never hides messed up, difficult details. So Saul's trying to kill David, and he goes to his son, Jonathan. Saul spoke to Jonathan, who happens to be David's best friend, his son, to all of his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's sons, doubted, uh, delighted much in David, excuse me. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. So we have this tension. He's like, no, 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 that's evil. I'm going to stand in that evil cause. So instead of killing David, what Jonathan does is he goes to David and says, hey, dad wants to kill you. Heads up. Well, we see, we see another example of that. Pretty soon after this, there's a second plot to kill David. And at this time, David's wife is Michael, who's the daughter of Saul. And, and, and she finds out that there's people coming to the house to kill David. And so she, she, hides, she says, go, get out of here. She tries to trick the people coming to kill him. Direct disobedience to the command of the king. Once again, if we go to a New Testament context, in the book of Acts, we might be citing a record this morning for the amount of texts referenced, but in the book of Acts, what we see is the apostles preaching. They're going to the temple, they're going to the synagogues, and they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and if we want to be united to the Father, we've got to come through the Son, right? That he saved us from our sins, and they're preaching that. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're really ticked off about that. So they imprison these apostles, Peter being one of them. And it's amazing. An angel comes into the prison. He breaks them free from imprisonment. And he says, go back out and keep teaching. And they're like, all right, let's go. And so they go back out into the temple. They're preaching again. And the Pharisees are like, what is happening? These dudes were just in prison. And so they get really ticked off. They bring them into this council. And they're like, we told you, don't do that. Stop it. 
right? And this is what this is what the text says. Acts 20, excuse me, Acts 5, starting in verse 27. And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So again, looking at this sort of biblical landscape, I think we see this point. We obey the authorities until the authorities directly forbid us from doing what God has commanded. It takes wisdom and that takes discernment. And I want to say very clearly, sometimes what has happened throughout the history of the church is people have got some deluded and deranged ideas in their head and they say, God told me this. Or people do really evil things with this command, well, God told me to. What I would say is if that God is telling you to do something that contradicts or goes against the overall push and narrative of Scripture, a spiritual thing might have told you that, but it wasn't God. So we've got to be really, really careful and really, really clear. If we're getting a direct command from the Lord that we feel, and we need to be obedient to that, we need to balance that with Scripture, the authoritative Word of God. We need to balance that with, with biblical community and input and wisdom because a lot of people have caused a lot of destruction by saying, well, just God told me to. So, how does this impact our day-to-day lives? How does this impact our vote on, say, August 8th? How does this impact how we vote in the next presidential election? I think several things to keep in mind. And the first one goes back to 1 Samuel when all of this started. 1 Samuel, if you remember, Samuel's the judge. And what happens is these leaders, they gather together, and remember what they say. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, said to him, Behold, you are old, sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And if you step back and think about it, it's like, guys, what are you doing? God is your king. Unlike any other nation, like God literally is like, no, I'm in charge. Here are the laws. Here are the rules. I am your king. And so what we see happening here is sort of this group think saying, well, all the other people, they've got these kings. That looks really fun. Their king goes out and battle before them. They do awesome stuff. We want to be like everybody else. And what we see happening here, church, is that their, their national identity is surpassing their divine identity. Their national identity is Israel. Like, we want to be this, this powerhouse nation. We want a king to rule over us. And when they step forward with that, what God says is they've rejected me as their divine king. And what I would say is when our national identity surpasses our divine identity, problems begin to happen. Because what happens here is, again, they reject God because of this idea that, no, this is who we are. This is what we want to be. This is in our authority. This is in our power. So again, how does that play out for us? We live in a nation, and again, I'm very thankful to live in this nation. We have two primary political parties, Democrats and Republicans. And I think we can absolutely align with those parties. Great. But see, the problem begins to emerge and bubble up when our political identity or our national identity becomes supreme in our life and our divine identity through faith in Christ becomes secondary. See, when that happens, a couple of other things begin to happen. For example, if our primary identity is rooted in our political affiliation and our political party is 
is constantly um, speaking a certain way or, or thinking a certain way, what happens is if our primary identity is rooted in that, we begin to follow along and we begin to speak a certain way about the opposing political party on both sides. And what happens is we actually we disregard the command that we've been given in the Bible to not speak against the king and to pray for the king. Because again, how can we pray for the ruler or the, whoever is in authority over us if we're constantly cursing that person? Constantly looking at them and saying, they're idiots. And again, we can disagree, but the point is, as followers of Jesus, we need to be praying for those people. The same thing can be applied a little bit differently. Again, the issue in 1 Samuel chapter 8 was that this group think happened, and they're like, let's do this, this is the right thing, and everybody seemed to miss, oh, asking for an earthly king is actually rejecting our divine king. And so they gather together, this is the thing we're going to do. You see, it's really easy to be carried away by the popular idea of the day when our identity is in our political affiliation or our national identity. Suddenly what can happen is if this is the way we do this, this is how we vote, this is how we think, what can happen is we can find ourselves essentially rejecting the truths of God by being carried and swept away with, again, what the popular idea of the day is. I think that very much has implications with how we use the voices that we've been given in our current context and our current culture. I told you it was going to be an uncomfortable one today. And so, I think then we have to, like, okay, obey the king, unless he tells me to do something very, very against my beliefs. Again, when I say king, what I mean is governing rulers that have been placed by God, just to be clear. Woman, man, that's the point, okay? We know, we know we're supposed to obey. We know we're supposed to, to pray for them. We know we're also supposed to follow God before them, essentially, so how does this then work out? How do we come to a balance? How do we do this wisely? And I think, once again, everything always comes back to Jesus. Everything comes back to Jesus. This week, as I was processing through this, I went to Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul speaking says this, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the gl they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's really, really easy to have our minds totally set on earthly things when politics and when national identity is our primary identity. And again, I'm not saying you can't align with a political party. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I think we should exercise our right to vote. Absolutely. But what I am saying is that our, our minds need to be set on divine things. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, church, when we begin to have a heavenly mindset first, what begins to happen is, our, 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 again, minds are focused on that, and everything else that happens in this life and in this earth holds a little bit less weight. 
It's not that it's not important. It's not, again, that we shouldn't care. But all of a sudden, if our, we realize our citizenship is primarily and first as a citizen of heaven, a blood-bought citizen of heaven, suddenly, again, that changes our priorities, that changes how we view the world, that changes how we view those who have been placed in the governing authorities over us because we understand all of this eventually culminates and points to Jesus. And so suddenly the priority is, what is it that most glorifies Jesus? Everything has to be filtered, processed through that lens. What is it in my language that most glorifies Jesus? What is it in how I spend my time and what I watch? And, and do, do I know more about, about Fox and CNN than I do the Bible? Like, what, what is it that my mind is focused on? And suddenly we begin to, like in verse 5 of chapter 8 of the book of Ecclesiastes, we begin to have a discerning heart. We begin to have discernment in, in God, help me not take a stand in evil and help me obey your commands because when I obey your commands, you are glorified. That's really what this life is about. We were created to glorify Jesus. We were created to be instruments in his hands for his purposes. And when we begin to take authority or control over that, we begin to walk outside of the very nature of our creation. Does that make sense? So what I would say to us, really, to close this morning, what's your primary identity? What's your primary focus? Do your spirits rise and fall on the outcomes of elections? Do you focus everything you have on this candidate has to be elected? I'm not saying political activism is bad. I'm not saying you can't hold public office. But again, what's the focus? What's the central goal of your heart? And I think some of us, we need to take a step of repentance this morning to say, you know what? The focus of my heart has been my national identity and maybe not my divine identity. So, as we have increasingly come accustomed to, I want us to, to really reflect this morning. I want us to bow our heads, and I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what's the true identity that I have. Where's my true focus? Where is my true heart? So would we do that? Uh, God, I am um, really challenged with this text this morning. And um, God, I know that only your spirit can work obedience in us. Only your spirit can work um, salvation in us. Only, only you can do this. And so God, if we find ourselves consistently and constantly cursing those who have been placed in leadership over us, I, I want to ask that you would give us a repentant heart in that. And yeah, we might disagree. I'm sure we disagree on a lot of things. But God, help us agree, first and foremost, that our purpose here is, Jesus, your glory. So anybody just in that spirit of, and this, this, maybe this morning it's really laying heavy on you, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that there is forgiveness in the cross. If your identity has been all mixed up, Jesus can make it right. He can line it up. He can take your identity out primarily of this world, and he can place it in himself, that you are a blood-bought son or daughter of Jesus. And the way that you walk into that is say, Jesus, 
Forgive me for how I've placed other identities and other priorities over you. Take my sin in that, Jesus. Give me a new heart to say, I want you to be my identity. I want you to be my focus. I want you to be my heart. And give me wisdom, God, to live that out in the everyday context of this world. Maybe for some of us, we, we don't even really know who Jesus is yet. And I want to give you that opportunity this morning to say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to surrender my life to you. Would you take my life? Would you give me your life, which is spotless, which is holy, which is pure, blemishless? Would you help me live in the newness of that life, Jesus, that you've given me? God, we want to honor you in all things. Give us grace this morning. We need it. I need it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, before we sing this last song, um, I want to just remind us uh, of our Next Steps team. They're in the back of the room, standing there with gray shirts. And so if during this song you feel like, you know what, I just need some prayer, they're for you. So during the song, stand up, walk back there, say, I need prayer over this, and they want to pray for you. So as we stand, I just want to remind us that's available for you. Would you stand to worship once again?
Amen. Uh, church, you can go ahead and have a seat. A couple of things here before uh, we go. Uh, first off, just so good to worship with you. If you were a guest, once again this morning, um, just want to encourage you to fill out that guest information card that I had mentioned. Um, also, before you go, if, if you didn't get an opportunity to stop at the Next Steps team to get prayed for, uh, we would love to have you do that uh, after service uh, as well. Uh, several things coming up to be aware of. First, um, on August 13th, which amazingly is just a couple of weeks away, uh, which is insane to me, uh, we're having something called our, our student parent uh, gathering. And so that is for any uh, parent um, who has a student in 6th through 12th grade, okay? And so um, we are uh, continuing to work to try and um, just increase our, our engagement and reach uh, for uh, students in that age range. And so this meeting is really an informational meeting for you parents on what we're going to be studying throughout that term from August to December, what the cadence, what the schedule is going to be like, so you have information and you're aware of it. And that will be here in the auditorium starting at about 1120. So we would love uh, parents uh, and students, if you would join us there, uh, that would be uh, fantastic. Uh, also, I want you to just be aware of a couple things happening uh, in the life of the church overall. And so at LifePoint, we are um, soon to be six campuses, and I'm going to talk about that here in a second. Six campuses, we're one church. Uh, we, excuse me, we meet in multiple locations. And so at our Westerville campus, which launched in 2018, um, there's a new teaching pastor. And so I just want to show you a picture of him. Uh, this is Matthew Angel and his wife and their kiddos. And so they came from Tampa, Florida. And his last or his first Sunday teaching was actually last week at the Westerville campus. So just be aware of that, praying for them. That's a big transition for our Westerville campus. And so keep them uh, in your prayers. And um, also over the last several months, we've seen some of God's activity. We had a church reach out to us in Worthington uh, who was struggling, and they asked, hey, would you guys consider us becoming a LifePoint campus? And so we walked down that road for a long time, decided, yep, this seems like a fit for everybody. And so there's going to be a new campus in Worthington launching here in a few months. And so we have also just hired the teaching pastor for uh, Worthington. And so I want to show you a video of Dan and his wife and really their vision for what God's doing in Worthington. So go ahead and check this out.
of a church community that is Jesus exalting, gospel exalting, and sees the real life transformation that can only come from them. We cannot wait to get to know you. We can't wait to get to know Bloomington and your city. Um, ultimately, we can't wait to know Jesus more as we walk through the Bible. And so if you live in the Bloomington area or anywhere around here, we would love for you to prayerfully consider joining our team as we get to know one another over the next many weeks. We'd love to hear your story and give you an opportunity to hear our story as we together join the larger story of what God has been and will be doing in So that is super exciting, um, and so I just want you to be aware of that. If you have family in Worthington, friends in Worthington, let them know that this is coming, it's happening. I mean, it, the building is right on uh, 23, just to the left, before you get to the 270 chaos. Um, uh, and so it is, um, I'm really excited for what's ahead there. And I also just want to share uh, with you, like when you give uh, on a Sunday morning, in part, right, we, uh, our giving primarily stays here in Marion, but a portion of that goes to support Central Team. Um, who then, um, you know, HR and finance and training and all of that. And so, in part, you and I, uh, we have a part in launching this campus in Worthington. And I think that's just really cool, right? That, that when we give here, we're having an impact globally, we're having an impact nationally, but we're also having an impact in helping more campuses launch to make more disciples, uh, to multiply the gospel. And as I say that as well, what I'm, I'm really prayerful for is over the, the, the coming years, uh, the LifePoint Delaware campus supports us here at Marion tremendously when it comes to finances. But what I'm really praying about is over the number of years, would we be able to be the campus that supports the next plant out of here, right? Would we be able to maybe tithe our congregation, in a sense, give away to help reach another neighboring community? And so I just want us to continually be praying about that, continuing to have generous hearts, generous minds to say, God, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to be? How can we be gospel multiplying in all things, all right? So when you give... You're giving in part to initiatives to things like that. Uh, that's it for this morning, church. Again, so thankful that you chose to worship with us. LifePoint, you are sent. Let's go and live out the gospel. Thank you.